0: Welcome to the History of English podcast, a podcast about the history of the English language. This is episode 131, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. In this episode, we're going to conclude our look at the English literary revival of the late 1300s with one of the most popular poems of that period, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. This poem was composed around the same time as the Canterbury Tales, but this particular poem is very different from Chaucer's works. It was composed in a different part of England, so the dialect is different. It also uses alliteration instead of the rhyming verse that Chaucer used, so it has a much more traditional Old English feel about it. But despite the difference in language and style, it remains one of the most enduring poems from the Middle English period, and so this time we'll examine the story of Gawain and the Green Knight, and we'll also explore the language used to tell the story. But before we begin, let me remind you that the website for the podcast is historyofenglishpodcast.com and you can sign up to support the podcast and get bonus episodes and transcripts at patreon.com historyofenglish. Now let's turn our attention to Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Over the past few episodes, we've explored a very important period in the history of the English language. I realize that it may seem like the overall progress of the story has stopped and that we've been stuck in the late 1300s for some time, but that's largely because there was an explosion of English literature in these final two or three decades of the century. Piers Plowman was composed, John Wycliffe and his followers translated the Bible into English, Geoffrey Chaucer composed most of his poetry, including The Canterbury Tales, and a poet in the northern part of England composed an Arthurian poem called Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. It's hard to say why this was such an active period for English literature, but it probably had a lot to do with the general reemergence of English as an officially accepted language around the middle of the century. As we've seen before, French had experienced a bit of a decline in official circles, and in its place, English had become the language of the schools and the language of Parliament. And a decade or so later, there was this massive renaissance of English literature, with most of the highly revered works coming around the same time as each other in the last quarter of the century. Then the movement faded a bit as the 1300s gave way to the 1400s. And that's a reminder that literary movements often come in waves, with writers influencing and encouraging each other, leading to periods when certain types of literature flourished. But eventually, those waves dissipated, and those literary movements faded. Well, the same type of thing happened to Arthurian romances in France over the prior century. In the late 1100s and 1200s, French writers had been consumed by stories about King Arthur. Many Arthurian romances had been written in France, and the story of Arthur had been fleshed out in those works— Writers like Chrétien de Troyes expanded the Arthurian universe with new stories and new characters, like Lancelot. In fact, much of what we associate with the modern Arthurian legend was created in those French stories. But by the late 1300s, that period of Arthurian literature had faded in France. There seemed to be a sense that the material had been taken as far as it could go. But despite the waning interest in France— Writers in England were keeping the legends alive. And that was especially true in the north of England. Several Athurian works were composed in England during the 1300s, and it appears that most of them were composed in the northern regions. And one of those poems was included in a manuscript that was largely forgotten for about five centuries. At some point in the late 1300s, a scribe compiled a manuscript that contained four poems. It's unlikely that the scribe was the actual poet. He probably was a scribe working in the burgeoning bookmaking industry, and he simply copied these pre-existing poems for a customer. Whatever motivated the scribe to create the manuscript, it's generally agreed that all four poems in the book were composed by the same poet, though the name of the poet is unknown. All of the poems are written in the same dialect, which was a dialect spoken in the Northwest Midlands and they're all written in a similar style, even using some of the same unique word choices. And these poems are only found in this one particular manuscript. There are no other copies from this period, so these were not widely circulated works. The exact date of the manuscript is unknown, but the script that was used and other general attributes of the book suggest that it was compiled at some point in the late 1300s around our current point in the overall story of English. The history of the book after that point is unclear, but it ultimately ended up in Robert Cotton's massive book collection in the 1700s. You might remember him from earlier episodes of the podcast. He was the guy who collected all of those old and Middle English manuscripts, and many of those surviving works were preserved thanks to his collection. His collection also included the only surviving copy of Beowulf. And you might remember that the house where his collection was maintained caught fire at one point, and some of the manuscripts in it were burned and lost forever. But thankfully, this little book of four poems survived the fire. It wasn't until the next century that scholars really began to read and dissect the book. One of the poems, called Pearl is a lament about the death of a small child. Two of the other poems deal with specifically Christian topics, suggesting that the author was a cleric or had been trained in the church. The final poem is a story about a ghostly green figure who tempts one of King Arthur's most loyal knights named Gawain. It didn't have a title, but it became known as Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. With its publication in the 1800s, nearly five centuries after it was written, the story finally began to be read by a wide audience, and it proved to be very popular. Within Middle English literature, its popularity is only rivaled by the Canterbury Tales. Now, I noted that this poem survived as part of Robert Cotton's collection, which also included the only surviving copy of Beowulf. Well, the Gawain poem has a couple of other things in common with Beowulf. Like Beowulf, it features a monster or supernatural being as one of its main characters. And also, like Beowulf, it's composed using alliteration in the style of Old English poetry. Unlike Chaucer, who usually wrote rhyming poetry, this particular poet preferred the more traditional English style. For this reason, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight is part of a larger movement that is sometimes called the Alliterative Renaissance, or the Alliterative Revival. It refers to a period in the late Middle Ages when English poets once again resorted to alliteration when composing their poetry. Most of those poems in that style were composed in the northern and western parts of the country. You might remember that Piers Plowman also used alliteration, so it was also part of this movement. Now, the term renaissance or revival implies that these poets were hearkening back to that earlier period of Old English poetry, perhaps because that was the way that English poetry had traditionally been written. So, with the revival of English as a literary language, these poets may have thought that that was the way you wrote poetry in English. However, some scholars are skeptical about terms like renaissance or revival. think that the old style never really disappeared in those regions, so it wasn't so much a conscious decision to bring back an old style as much as a continuation of a style that was still being used. What's so interesting about the Gawing poet's style is that he did incorporate some rhyming verses as well, and he did so in a very deliberate way. The poem is divided into a series of short stanzas. The total number of lines within each stanza varies, but it's usually around a dozen or so lines. Again, each line uses alliteration with a series of words that begin with the same sound. But at the very end, each stanza ends with five rhyming lines, the final four being very short lines of just a few words. This little rhyming section at the end of each stanza is often referred to as the bob and wheel, And it's a style that's really unique to this poem. The alliteration of the poem is also important as it relates to the history of English. In order to write that kind of poetry, you actually need a very large vocabulary because you need to incorporate words that tell the story, but also begin with specific sounds. So, if you're composing a rhyme, you really just focus on the final word in each line. Those are the key words that have to end with the same sound. But if you're composing a poem using alliteration, you have to come up with several words within each line that all begin with the same sound. So it's actually a bit more challenging in that regard, and it requires you to have a pretty broad vocabulary to pull from. You might remember that old English poets used stock phrases and formulas to satisfy the requirements of the line. Well, the Gawain poet delves into his deep vocabulary of native old english words french and latin loan words and the norse words that were so common in the northern midlands so we have this fascinating mixture of words many of which were probably considered to be old-fashioned at the time and aren't really found in english documents beyond this point in fact they're rarely found outside of this type of poetry so for example The poem features knights and other characters who interact with each other, so the poet routinely had to refer to a person or a man or a knight, and that meant that he needed lots of synonyms for person, and he needed a variety of words that began with different letters. So, in addition to words like man and knight and lord, all of which come from Old English, he also used a lot of other terms. Sometimes he used the word prince which came from Latin and French. Sometimes he used the word tulk, which is apparently an Old Norse word. It's only found in a handful of works from this general period, and it also appears in a couple of the other poems in the manuscript that contains the Gawain poem. The poet also used a variety of Old English terms that were quickly disappearing from the language, some of which are rarely found beyond this period. For example, he used Old English words for man, like Goma, leda and secha. He also used the word wecha, which meant person, and he used Freke, which meant knight. He also used the old English word bürna, which meant warrior. It's distinct from the word bairn, meaning a child, which still survives in some dialects in northern England and Scotland. The poet also used the old English word rank, meaning warrior which is related to the word rank in the phrase rank and file. He used the Old English word shock, meaning servant, which survives in the second part of the word marshal. And he also had another interesting synonym at his disposal. It was the word hothel. Now that's another one of those words that only appeared in a handful of poems around this period of time, from the late 1300s into the 1400s. And the Gawain poet used it quite a bit. Another interesting thing about the word Hothel is that it appears in all four of the poems contained in this particular manuscript, even though it wasn't a very common word. And it's those types of linguistic clues that have led many scholars to conclude that all four of the poems in this manuscript were composed by the same author. There's also another interesting thing about that word Hothel, meaning man or warrior. It actually appears to be a portmanteau. And that would make it one of the first known portmanteaus in the English language. Now, a portmanteau is a word that's formed by taking parts from two or more different words and putting them together. So, it's what happens when breakfast and lunch are combined to form brunch. When motor and hotel are combined to form motel. When smoke and fog form smog. When iPod and broadcast form the word podcast. Also, think about words like Brexit, bromance, frenemy, mansplain. We create these types of words all the time in modern English, but it was very rare to do that in older periods of English. As I noted, this word hothel is one of the first recorded portmanteaus in the language. It combines the Old English words haleth, meaning warrior, and Athel, meaning noble. And together, Haleth and Athel created this word, Hathel. So we see how the Gawing poet pulled from his extensive vocabulary to come up with the words he needed to satisfy the alliteration requirements of the poem. Now, before we get to the poem, let me make a couple of other quick notes about the language of the poem and the hero of the poem. First of all, as I've noted, the poem is written in a dialect that was spoken in the Northwest Midlands. Scholars have even pinpointed the location to the region around Cheshire, so, roughly speaking, the region south of modern-day Liverpool and Manchester. The poet also appears to have had a very good knowledge of the Welsh marches, so that location is consistent with those descriptions. So that was apparently where this dialect was spoken. It's very different from Chaucer's London dialect, and it has a lot of northern features. Now, I'm not going to go through all of those northern features because I covered them in some detail in the last episode, but this poet uses a lot of the same features that Chaucer gave to his northern students in the Reeves tale, which we explored last time. However, being from the Midlands, the Gawain poet's dialect shows a bit more of a blend of north and south. For example, he used both the northern pronoun there and its southern equivalent, here. He also tended to end his plural nouns with the northern S ending, which became standard over time, but he sometimes used the southern EN ending as well. So again, this dialect contains a mixture of northern and southern features, which is what we would expect to see in the Midlands. And then lastly, let me make a quick note about the hero of the poem, Gawain. In the Arthurian legends, he was the nephew of Arthur. And he was actually Arthur's leading knight in the original versions of the legend. So you may be wondering why we don't hear very much about Gawain in the modern retelling of the legends. Well, this is another one of those cases where we can thank or blame the French writers who expanded the legend in the late 1100s and 1200s. Gawain was a figure in the original Welsh versions of the legend and he continued to be a major figure in the early Latin version, composed by Geoffrey of Monmouth in the 1100s, called The History of the Kings of Britain. That book was very popular at the time, and it triggered much of the interest in Arthur in England and France and other parts of Western Europe. Again, Gawain featured very prominently in that version of the story. He was Arthur's right-hand man. But then those French writers, like Chrétien de Troyes, expanded the story and he added the character of Lancelot. And over time, Lancelot largely replaced Gawain as Arthur's greatest knight in the French tradition. Well, that was the French tradition. But back in England, Gawain remained the principal knight. And that's probably why he was featured as the hero in this poem about the Green Knight. And Gawain's prominence continued for about another century or so. But then, in the late 1400s, Sir Thomas Mallory compiled many of the Arthurian stories into his somewhat definitive work called La Morte d'Arthur, or The Death of Arthur. And he pulled heavily from the French tradition. And that's really when Lancelot started to replace Gawain in the English tradition as well. But again, that change took place at a later date. So Gawain remains the hero here in this poem. By the way, Lancelot is actually mentioned in the poem but he's just another member of the roundtable. Also, one last note regarding the name Gawain. I've mentioned that name a few times in earlier episodes of the podcast, and I always get feedback about the proper way to pronounce it. Generally speaking, the A-I-N spelling represents the ain sound in modern English, as in words like pain and chain and stain. So, the most common modern pronunciation is either Gawain or Gawain, depending on which syllable you stress. But if we try to identify the pronunciation in Middle English, things become a little more complicated. First, if we use the normal spelling G-A-W-A-I-N, we encounter that letter combination A-I in the second syllable. In Old English, that spelling typically represented the I sound. So, that would give us the pronunciation Gawain. But, as I noted a few episodes back when I was talking about Chaucer, the sound represented by that spelling shifted in the late Middle English period and became more like A, at least in Chaucer's dialect. So, that would give us something more like Gawain. But again, all of that assumes that the pronunciation was based on the modern spelling G-A-W-A-I-N. In reality, the spelling of the name varied greatly in the Middle English period, suggesting that the pronunciation varied even during that time. In fact, in this particular poem, the poet spells it several different ways, but it's usually spelled G-A-W-A-N, implying that the pronunciation was more like Gawain, which is another common pronunciation today. And I should also note that the name eventually evolved into the modern name gavin, and that also indicates that the second vowel sound was shortened over time. So, at any rate, the proper Middle English pronunciation is debatable, but for purposes of this episode, I'm using gawain for the modern translation and gawain for the original Middle English passages, since that more closely matches the poet's spelling. So with that, let's turn to the actual poem. I'm going to take you through the poem by reading and analyzing a few key passages. And as I often do, I'm going to give you the modern English translation first, and then I'll read the original Middle English version. I'm also electing to keep the stanzas intact as much as possible without breaking them up into smaller segments. I think that will give you a better sense of the alliteration and the overall flow of the language. Now, in keeping with tradition, the poem begins by noting the mythical origins of the British kings, by stating that the line of kings were descended from the Trojan warrior Aeneas, who was also the mythical founder of Rome. This was a widely accepted mythology at the time, and it served to link Arthur to the ancient Romans, and even to the Trojans and the Greeks. The poet tells us that Arthur was the most courteous of all the British kings, and he says that he will now recount a story he heard about a marvelous event that occurred during Arthur's reign. Having set the scene, the poet tells us that it was Christmas time at Camelot. This king lay at Camelot at Christmas time, with many lovely lords, leaders of the best, revered knights of the round table, all the rich brethren, with rich revelry aright and reckless mirth. There true men rode in tournaments time and time again, jousted with jolly these gentle knights, then came to the court and danced to carols for the feast was in force for full fifteen days, with all the meat and mirth that men could envisage. This king lay at upon Christmas, with mony lovely Dorda, ladies of the best, reckingly of the Run table all the rich brether, with rich revel orisht and the mirthes. There tonia took us full money, just Joosted full jollily these gentle Knectas. sith in carred to the court, carles to mark, for there the feast was illich full fifteen days, with all the meta and all the mirth that man coth avisa. So the poet has told us that it was Christmas time at King Arthur's court. He speaks of the festivities, including tournaments, jousting, dancing, and eating, He mentions that the guests danced to carols, and it's important to keep in mind that the word carols didn't refer to Christmas carols in the modern sense of the term. It referred to medieval dances, usually ring dances that were accompanied by singing. And this short passage also shows us how the poet incorporated a lot of synonyms for the guests. He referred to them as ladies, rekenly, tulks, kniechtes, or knights, and men. Each choice helped to maintain the required alliteration in each line. The poet continues his description of the festivities at the court during Christmas time and the days that followed. He then turns his attention to the New Year's feast held at the court. Arthur and his knights entered the hall. People laughed and played games and entertained themselves until dinner time. Then everyone gathered at the dinner table, with Guinevere sitting in the middle of the gathered knights "'and Gawain sitting beside her. "'The dishes were served, "'accompanied by the blaring of trumpets and kettle-drums. "'There was so much food "'that there was barely room on the table for all of it. "'Though all were gathered for the meal, "'Arthur wouldn't eat until all the tables were served. "'It was also customary that on such a holiday "'the king wouldn't eat until someone told a story "'of some great adventure, "'or a joust was held between the knights.' So Arthur engaged in casual conversation while the guests were served. Finally, the meal was underway, but it was about to be interrupted by an uninvited guest. Now I will say to you no more of the service, for all may well know that there were none who were lacking. But then another noise and a new one suddenly drew near, in less time than a guest had leave to take a bite." For scarcely was the noise in the hall not a while ceased, and the first course in the court kindly served, when there hurried into the hall a horrible figure, the greatest in height of any human in the whole world, from the neck to the waist so stout and so thick, and his loins and limbs so great and long, half a giant from under heaven I hope he was. To my mind he was the most intimidating man, and the mightiest of any man that might ride in saddle. From his back to his breast, his body was bold and stern. But his womb and his waist were worthily small. And all his features followed in form and proportion, full clean. For the men were amazed at his color, set in this outwardly seen. He fared as a freakish phantom, and all over he was bright green." Nu will e of ur service say you no more, for each week may well wheat no want that there were, and other noise full ney and ney in believer, that the lord might have never leave naught to catch, for unetha was the noise not a wheel assist, and the first chorus in the court kindly the servid, their hollis at the hall door an archledge master, and the most on the molder on measure hir. Fro the sweer to the swang is so swar and so thick, and his leendes and his limb is so long and so great. Half aitain in erde he hope that he were, but mon must he a gate mean him to bane, and that the merriest in his muckle that micht ride. For of bark and of breast all were his body stirna, but his womb and his wasp were worthily small. And all his features full wenda, informed that he had a full cleaner, for wonder of his home in Hada, set in his somblant senna, he fared as Freca Werfada, and over all anchor Crane. So out of nowhere the poet has introduced the remarkable character of the Green Knight to the story, and note the bobbin wheel ending to that passage. Each line uses alliteration, but at the very end, the last five lines also use rhyming verse. Each stanza of the poem ends this way. Now, after telling us that the knight was bright green, the poet then makes clear that he doesn't mean that figuratively. He means that the knight was literally green. Not only was his skin green, he was also dressed in green, and even the horse that he was riding was green as was its saddle and bridle. The poet tells us that the horse's saddle glimmered and glint all of green stones. Glimmered and gleaned all of green stones. Notice the alliteration. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, this is the first recorded use of the word glimmer in the English language. It's probably from the same Old English root as gleam. The poet then follows that word glimmer with the word glint to carry out the alliteration. Glint is an Old Norse word meaning to flash or gleam. And then a little later in the poem, the poet uses the word glitter for the first time. It was probably derived from a Norse word and it's ultimately derived from the same Germanic root as glimmer and gleam. Now all of those words pop up in this poem in large part because the poet needed words with similar meanings that began with the same sound. So, glimmer and glitter are used for the first time because they alliterated with words like glint and gleam. And more importantly, they alliterated with the word green, which was very important to this story. Now, having described the knight's appearance, the poet then provides another important note. We're told that the green knight wasn't wearing a helmet or chainmail or armor. He didn't carry a sword or shield. He simply carried a branch of green holly in one hand and an axe in the other. This knight came near and navigated the hall, driving toward the distinguished dais, not disturbed by the danger. Without greeting the gathered guests, glancing over their heads, whereupon he spoke his first words. "'Where,' he asked, "'is the governor of this gang that I might gladly address?' To set my sight on that sir, I have something to say to him. To the knights he cast his eye, and observed them up and down, studying each one as he went by, to see who had the most renown. This Hatho held his him in, and the hall entrance, driven to the hech days, doth he no water, whilst he never own, but heck he overlook the fairest word that he warp where is, he said, the governor of this gang gladly would, so that sage and sechton with him self spake, raisun. Took next he cast his eye, and railed him up and down, and stammered, and constodia, who wot there most renown. So the green knight took the measure of the guests in the hall. Arthur and his knights sat in stunned silence. The green knight had demanded to speak to the governor of the group, so Arthur spoke up and identified himself as the leader. He said, Welcome be to this place, They head of this hostel, Arthur Yacht. Welcome indeed to this place. I am the head of this hostel. My name is Arthur. Arthur invited the ghostly knight to dismount from his horse and join the festivities, but the green knight rejected the offer. "'No,' said the knight, "'so help me from him that sits on high. "'To remain in this mansion for any while is not my motive. "'But since thy stature, sir, is held so high, "'and thy brilliant castles and brave knights "'are said to be the best, "'thy men are the strongest in steel armor "'to ride on steeds, "'the most worthy and well-considered in all the world, "'prepared to put up a fight for the pure play of it. "'And here chivalry is shown, as I have heard said.' and that has brought me here at this time. You may be assured by this branch that I bear here that I pass in peace and seek no plight. For if I had fared here in a fighting way, I have a hauberk of chain mail at home and a helmet too, a shield and a sharp spear shining brightly, and other weapons to wield I know well their worth. But since I wish no war, I wear a softer wardrobe. But if thou brothers are as bold as many believe, Thou wilt goodly grant me the game that I ask by right. Arthur did answer, and said, Sir Courteous Knight, if thou crave battle here, we will not fail to fight. Nigh, as help me, quoth the Athol, he that on hich sittis, to won any whill in this one, it was not mean errand, but for the loss of the lady is lived up so here, and the birch and the baroness best are holden. Steepest under steel garra on state to read, the weakest and the worthiest of the world's is kinda, Prave for to ply with in all the pure likes, and here in kinda as ye have heard carp, and that has whined me hither, he weesa at this team. Yea, may be sacred be this branch that ye bear here, that he pass as in pace, and no plicht such, for had he found it in fairer, "'In fighting wees, uh, "'ye have an oberk at home, "'and a helm both, uh, "'a shield, uh, "'and a sharp spear, shun de bricht, "'and uh, other to wield, uh, "'ye wain a wail also. "'But, for the no nowhere, "'me wain this are softer, "'but if thou be so bold "'as all a bear in "'thou will grant me godly "'the goldman that he ask be writ.' "'Other conon sware, uh, "'and sighed, Siacordus connect, if thou crave a battle bear, here failest though not to So again, notice the alliterating lines and the little bob and wheel rhyming section at the very end. At first glance, this stanza presents the Green Knight as a visitor who is not looking for a fight, but only asking to play a game, to offer a challenge to the gathered knights. But Arthur assumes otherwise, and responds that if the ghostly figure is looking for a fight, he will find it there in the hall. So why does Arthur assume that the Green Knight's motives are not so innocent? Well, there's a subtle indication that's lost on most modern readers. When the Green Knight addresses Arthur the king, he addresses him with the pronouns thou and thee and thy. Now, as you may recall, those were the standard second-person pronouns inherited from Old English, and they were the ones you used when you were speaking to an individual. Those were the singular forms. The pronouns you and your were the plural forms used when addressing two or more people. And even though this distinction has long disappeared from English, I think most of us recognize this older form of the language because thou, thee, and thy survived into the early modern English period and we still hear those old pronouns in Shakespeare's plays and in the King James Bible and other works of literature from the early modern period. Of course, those distinct singular forms eventually disappeared, and they were replaced with the plural forms you and your. So today, you does all the work, and we use it for both singular and plural. But again, in late Middle English, when the Gawain poem was composed, the pronouns thou and thee and thy were still being used to address an individual, but the way they were used had evolved. By that point, they resembled the way French uses its second-person pronouns. Thou and thee and thy were only used when addressing a family member or a close friend or someone who was your inferior, so they were only used in informal situations. If you were addressing a superior or a stranger who might be your superior, you were expected to use the more formal or polite pronoun, which was the plural pronoun you. So the plural pronoun you was being used as a singular pronoun at this point, but only in formal situations as a polite form of address. Again, if you speak French, that's basically the same way the pronouns work there. And that was the beginning of the evolution of you from a strictly plural pronoun to the all-purpose pronoun that it's become today. So given the distinction between informal thou and thee and thy and formal you and your, we would expect that King Arthur would be addressed with the latter. After all, he was the king and a highly revered king at that. Once Arthur had introduced himself to someone, that person would almost always address him with the formal you. But the Green Knight doesn't do that. He addresses Arthur with the informal pronouns, thou and thee and thy. And that implied that the Green Knight didn't recognize Arthur as his superior. That would have been considered an affront to the king, and it may explain why Arthur assumes that the Green Knight is looking for a fight. By the way, Arthur also addresses the Green Knight with thou and thee and thy in return. So neither character gives much respect to the other. Throughout their exchange, they vow each other in the same way, choosing not to use the polite form of address which would have been expected. And this would have been very obvious to an English speaker of the late 1300s. The main point here is that the use of these second-person pronouns had acquired a social context by this point, and speakers and poets were very particular about the way they used those words. And here, the Gawain poet used them to indicate that the Green Knight didn't fit into the normal social order recognized at the Arthurian court. One other quick note about that passage before we move on. In one line, the Green Knight says that he has heard that Arthur and his men are brave and love physical contests. In my translation, he says that the men are prepared to put up a fight for the pure play of it. But the original line was, "prave for to play with in other pure likes. Literally, proven for to play with in other pure likes. Notice that word at the end, likes, spelled L-A-Y-K-E, yog, yog was the Old and Middle English letter that looked like a cursive Z or Z, and it represented several different sounds depending on the context. The Gawain poet used it a lot for the S sound at the end of words. Well, this word likes meant games or sports. It was a Northern dialect word, and it still survives in the north of England as lake or like, meaning to play. It's a Norse word which corresponds to a similar Old English word. And the reason why I know that the word survives in Northern England is because several of you have noted that word in the various voice samples that I've collected over the past few years. Several of you have submitted regional words and phrases that aren't generally found in Standard English, and a couple of you from Yorkshire have mentioned that the word like is still used as a synonym for play. Here's an example from listener Paul, who provides a short sentence, first in his local Yorkshire dialect and then in standard English. When I were a lad and I were bored, my father had said to me, go out and lake. So I'd go out to the park and start laking with my mates. When I was a boy and I was bored, my father would say to me, go out and play. So I'd go out to the park and play, start playing with my friends. The word lake... Old English or Norse, meaning to play. So as we can see, the poet's language and word choices may seem very old-fashioned at first listen, but it isn't as old-fashioned as you might think. Some of these terms are still found in modern English dialects in northern England and Scotland. Now, returning to the poem, the Green Knight has requested to play a game, but Arthur has answered by saying that if the ghostly knight wants a fight, he's come to the right place. Now the green knight responds. No, I have not fared here to fight, in good faith I tell you. There are about this bench nothing but beardless children. If I were held fast in arms on a high horse, there is no man here to match me, for your might is too weak. Therefore I crave in this court a Christmas game, for it is Yule and New Year, and here are many young men. If anyone in this house holds himself in such high esteem, and is so bold in his blood and brave in his head, that he dares to swap one swift stroke for another, I shall give him as my gift this great battle-axe, this gizarm, this axe that is heavy enough for him to handle as he likes, and I shall abide and bear the first blow on my body as I sit here. If any soul seated here is so brave to stand and test what I say... Leap to me quickly, and I will let go of this weapon. He can have it forever, and keep it as his own. And I shall receive a stroke from him without shuddering. But I shall be granted the right to regain my grace, and give a blow in return when I say, And I will grant a delay for twelve months and a day, whereupon the debt shall be repaid. Now, what do you have to say? Nai, frais no in fire thee, they tell. Yet are bought this bench but this children. If ye were a husband in arms on a hick stair, there is no man made to mash, for a mecht this so wake For thee a in this quarter Christmas garment, for it is y'all in New Year, and here are ye money. A man is so hardy in this hold as himself, and be so bold in his blood and brian in his head, that dare stiffly strike a stroke for another, he shall give him of me gift this gizirin richa, this axe, that is heavy enough to handle as him likus, and he shall be the first bear as bare as he sita. If any frake be so faile to fonder that he teller, leap licht me too, and lock this weapon, he quit clammy it forever. Keep a hit as his own, and he shall stand to him a stroke steep on this plate; else, thou wilt direct me thy doom to daily him another, by lie, and yet give him a respite, a twelvemonth and a day. Now here, and let's see it, therein herein ought say. So the Green Knight made an offer to the gathered knights of the Round Table he offered to let any one of them strike him with the axe. But the one who delivers the blow has to agree to let the green knight return the favor, exactly one year and a day later. At first, Arthur and his men sat in stunned silence. No one said anything, so the green ghost turned in his saddle to see if anyone had the nerve to take him up on his offer. With no response, the green knight mocked the gathered men. He said that Arthur and his men were known far and wide, so... Where was their pride and bluster? He laughed at them and suggested that they were cowards. Arthur's anger gave him the courage to approach the green knight. Arthur confronted the green figure and said that the proposed game was senseless. The idea was such madness that it deserved to be granted. Arthur grabbed the axe and prepared to strike the knight. But suddenly, Arthur's nephew, Gawain, stood up and intervened. He insisted that he be the one to take up the challenge. He said the obligation should fall to Arthur's loyal knights, not to the king himself. Gawain begged his uncle for the right to strike the blow upon the neck of the green knight. Arthur relented and gave the axe to Gawain. Gawain approached the green knight, who asked the young man his name, and Gawain identified himself. The knight reiterated the terms of the agreement. Gawain will strike him across the neck with the axe, but twelve months and a day later, The green knight will repay the blow upon Gawain. Gawain agreed, and the terms of the game were settled. The green knight stepped down and stood upon the ground, and leaned his head forward a little to lay bare his skin. He laid his long, lovely locks of hair over his crown, with his naked neck now showing. Gawain gripped the axe and gathered it up high. His left foot he fastened to the floor in front of him. He thrust the axe through the naked flesh, so that the sharp blade shattered the neck bones and sank through the soft skin and sliced it in two, until the bright steel blade bit into the ground. The fair head was freed from the neck and fell to the earth. The gathered fellows kicked it with their feet across the floor, the blood bleeding from the body as it blanketed the green skin. But the frightening figure never faltered nor fell. He stepped forth on sturdy legs, as strong as before, and reached out among the rollicking knights and retrieved his head. He picked it up and placed it in the palm of his hand, and then strolled to his steed and seized the bridle, stepped into the stirrups and straddled the horse. He held his head by the hair in his hands. Said knight sat sternly in his saddle, as if no mishap had happened to him, though he had no head. He twisted the trunk about, that ugly body that bled. The guests were afraid, no doubt, when they heard what he said. The green connect upon the groan gravely him traces. A little loot with the head the lair he discovers. His long, lovely look as he layed over his crown. Let the naked neck to the knot show. Go and grip it to his axe and garris his hit on hect. They cae a on the fold a heavy forest set, that it done lichtly licht on the naked, that they sharp of the shock shindered the bonus, and shrunk thir in sheer grace, and shad a hit in twina, that they beat of the bruin's stale boat on the ground, that fair a for all the horse a hit to the earth, that fail a hit foined with her fate, there a hit forth rolled the blood braied through the body that it on the grain, and northern faltered, and failed the freak, never they held her. Both steeply he start forth upon steep shrunkes, and runishly he rocked out, there as rank stood, in, locked to his lovely head, and lifted up Sona and seething boyous to his block, the o he catches, steepest into still bow, and as aloft, and his head be the hero in his horn to and as uh, sadly they sage him in his saddle set, as none on harp had him ailed, they held as he were in stera, he bride his blue boat, that ugly body that blade money on of him had dot, be that his raisins were rare. So the Green Knight held his head toward the gathered knights and turned the face in their general direction. The head spoke directly to Gawain, telling him to honor his end of the bargain. Gawain was told to make his way to the Green Chapel in one year's time, where the debt was to be repaid with a stroke of the axe upon his head on New Year's morning. The headless knight said that he was known as the Knight of the Green Chapel, and if Gowing should happen to break his word, he would forever be regarded as a coward. The Green Knight then rode out through the door and disappeared from sight. With that, the scene in the hall began to return to normal. After a moment, Arthur dismissed the events as a Christmas time apparition, and the gathered crowd returned to eating, drinking, singing, and dancing. But the revelry disguised the concern felt by Gowing and his uncle Arthur. They both knew that Gawain would have to honor the deal that had been made, and Gawain's fate was likely sealed. The New Year's festivities marked the beginning of a new year, and that year quickly passed, as one season gave way to the next. In describing the spring and summertime, the poet included the following lines. Lovely are the leaves that spring thereout, when that damp dew drops off the leaves, to abide a blissful blush of the bright sun. Welaina is the word that WOXES is the root. When the AND doe a drop is off the lavis to be the blissful blush of the BRIGHT SUN. I mention this passage because it contains one of the first recorded uses of the word blush in the English language. The poet refers to the blissful blush of the bright sun. And here we see the original sense of the word blush. It meant a glimpse or glance or quick look. So the bright sun glimpses or glances at the dew on the leaves. That original sense of the word blush has largely disappeared, except in the very well-known phrase, at first blush, which also appeared around this same time in the 1300s. Of course, we all know that at first blush means at first glance. But you may have wondered what blushes have to do with glances. Well, originally, a blush was a glance. In the early modern period, the sense of the word shifted from looking at something to the way something looked. So it came to refer to a person's general appearance. And from there, it was a short step to the reddish appearance that a person gets when they're embarrassed or ashamed. So that was the evolution of blush. And as I noted, this passage in the Gawain poem is one of the first recorded uses of the word in English. It isn't entirely clear where the word came from, but the best guess is that it came from an unrecorded word in either Old English or Old Norse. Now the spring and summer gave way to autumn, and as the end of the year approached, Gawain finally announced that the time had come for him to depart on his search for the green knight in order to repay his debt. Before leaving, he was outfitted in his armor and the process is described in great detail in the poem. Gawain's horse was also outfitted with a saddle, bridle, and accessories that were glittering and sparkling. As I noted earlier, the poem contains the first recorded use of the word glitter, and the description of the ornaments on Gawain's horse is the context for that reference. The poet wrote of the accessories, That all glittered and glint as gleam of the sun that all glittered and glinted like the gleam of the sun. Fully outfitted, Gawain headed out on his journey to find the castle where the Green Knight lived. He then proceeded through the countryside, and along the way he asked strangers if they knew of the Green Knight or the Green Chapel. No one had heard of either, so Gawain traveled deeper and further into the frozen countryside. He traveled until Christmas Eve without ever finding the figure he was searching for. Finally, he prayed to Mary to help him in finding a house where he could hear Christmas mass. A short time later, he came upon a massive castle, the most beautiful castle that any knight had ever seen. Gawain was welcomed into the mansion and led to the central hall, where he was greeted warmly by the lord of the castle. The host was large and stout, and he assigned a servant to attend to Gawain. Gawain soon joined the host and other guests at a large dinner. During the meal, the other dinner guests asked Gawain about himself to find out who he was and where he came from. They did so very discreetly. According to the poem, Then was spied and spoken in a spare way by discreet questions of that prince put to himself. (inaudible) Dana was speared and spied upon sparoisa. Be prey of appointus of that prince, put to himself in. Gawain then told them that his name was Gawain, and he had come from King Arthur's court. He had been guided to the castle by chance, and found himself there on Christmas Day. The host and the others laughed and felt honored to be joined by such a prominent guest. They knew that Gawain would exhibit the finest manners and forms of speech. The poem says that they murmured to each other and said the following— God has given us good grace. In truth, he has granted us to have such a guest as Gawain. God has given us the grace godly for Sotha, that such a guest as Gawain grant us, us to have. So Gawain was welcomed by all in attendance. Now, those two little passages may not seem all that significant, but they point to a very, very important development in The language. It's very subtle, but the spellings indicate that the scribe pronounced a specific sound in a new way. That sound was a vowel sound, and it may be an early indication that the Great Vowel Shift had begun in certain parts of England. Now, we're going to explore the Great Vowel Shift in upcoming episodes. The Great Vowel Shift is the term for the series of vowel changes that took place in English in the transition from Middle English to Modern English. These changes took place over more than two centuries, and they account for the way a large portion of our words are pronounced today. And they also wreaked havoc on spelling, because, as we'll see, English spelling became fixed and standardized before the Great Vowel Shift was complete. As a result, when the vowel changes were finally settled, many words were no longer pronounced like they were spelled. So this is a very important topic in the history of English and we have some subtle indications that the process was starting to get underway in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. These indications come from the way the scribe spelled the word given and the Middle English word "prive," which meant private or discreet. Priv is an early form of the word privy, and of course a variation of the word private. Both privy and private are derived from the same Latin root word privatus. The people at the dinner table had asked with prive or discreet, questions, and they felt that they had been given God's grace by having Gawain attend the dinner. The initial vowel sound in each of those words was traditionally spelled with an I and pronounced with the sound of the letter I at the time, which was E. So, prive was P-R-I-V-E, and given was pronounced given and was spelled G-I-V-E-N. And just to be clear, the letters U and V were not distinct yet, so instead of the modern angular V, they were actually spelled with the curvy U, but it represented the V sound. So both of those words were spelled with an I, and both were pronounced with the long I sound, which was E. Now, the location where that E sound is pronounced in the mouth is very important to the great vowel shift. That sound is located very high in the mouth. Of all the vowel sounds, it's pronounced at the highest and most forward position in the mouth. I mentioned last time that we still have that pronunciation in some words, especially words which have been borrowed from other languages in recent centuries. I gave examples of Italian food terms like pizza and spaghetti and linguine. So, we sometimes use that pronunciation today, but we mostly use the modern long I sound, which evolved over the course of the Great Vowel Shift. And, of course, that sound is I, as in the name of the letter. Notice that the I sound is pronounced much further in the back of the mouth. So, over time, the sound shifted from E, high in the front of the mouth, to I, low in the back of the mouth. We can hear that shift in the difference between Middle English PREV and Modern English PRIVATE. Well, that sound didn't go directly from E to I. It actually changed in stages, moving lower and backward one step at a time. Now, the specifics aren't really important here, but I just want to note that the sound shifted backward over time in small gradual steps. Now, that process is very important to the great vowel shift because during that series of vowel changes, most of the long vowel sounds actually shifted upward and higher in the mouth. But those other sounds couldn't shift upward until the E sound had moved out of the way. So, if you imagine a broken-down car blocking traffic on a highway, all the cars behind it can't move until a tow truck comes and moves the broken car out of the way. And once that car is gone, all of the cars lined up behind it can start to move forward. Well, that's what happened in the great vowel shift. As long as the letter I had the E sound, it was basically blocking the other vowels underneath it. They couldn't move very much. But when that E sound started to shift backward, it cleared the way for all other vowels underneath it and behind it to move upward and forward. And so scholars look for evidence to pinpoint when this E sound started to shift backward in the mouth to clear the way. And we can see some potential evidence of that change in the way the Gowing scribe spelled some of these words which traditionally had that E sound. Rather than spelling them with a letter I, which had that sound, he chose instead to spell them with a letter E, which represents a slightly lower vowel sound. And that suggests that he pronounced the word prev as prev and given as given. Again, some scholars cite these types of spellings in the Gawing poem as an early indication that the long vowel sound represented by letter I was starting to shift backward and was starting to be pronounced with a slightly lower vowel sound, at least by some speakers in the North Midlands. And if that assumption is correct, this poem might be an early indication that the great vowel shift was starting to get underway. By the way, this evidence is cited by John H. Fisher and Diane Bornstein in their collection of Old and Middle English texts called In Form of Speech is Change. They cite these unique spellings in the Gowing poem as evidence of that early vowel shift. Now, we'll leave that issue there for now, but I wanted to plant that seed for you, because it's going to bear a lot of fruit in future episodes. Now, returning to the poem, the dinner came to an end, and Gawain attended Mass. The next day, he was invited to a large Christmas feast, where he sat beside the wife of his host. At the head of the table was a very old woman, who we will later find out was Morgan Le Fay a key figure in the Arthurian legends. She was a witch or sorceress who emerged as a sinister character in the French versions of the legends. But to Gawain, she was merely an old woman who attended the dinner. During a conversation with the host, Gawain explained that he needed to find the green chapel and the knight who guards it. He needed to arrive there in three days' time. The host said he knew the location of the chapel, and he invited Gawain to remain as a guest at the castle until the final day, at which time he would have a servant show Gawain the way. Gawain agreed. The host then told Gawain that he was going on a hunt, and he asked Gawain to remain behind and rest and keep his wife company. The host then proposed that they each agree to exchange whatever they should acquire during their respective adventures. And Gawain agreed. The next morning, the host left for the hunt, while Gawain slept. The host's wife entered Gawain's bedroom and tried to seduce him. Gawain declined the advances, but ultimately agreed to accept a kiss. Later, the host returned, having killed several deer. He gave all the venison to Gawain, and in exchange, Gawain grabbed his host and kissed him, telling him that the kiss was the only winnings he had acquired. The host accepted the kiss and asked Gawain where he acquired it, but Gawain said that such information was not part of the agreement. The next morning, the host once again left for the hunt, and Gawain remained in bed, and once again Gawain was visited by the wife who tried to seduce him. And again Gawain rejected the advances, but this time he acquired two kisses from the wife. The host finally returned to the manor having killed a boar during the hunt. He gave the boar to Gawain and Gawain returned the gift with two kisses. The next morning, the host went fox hunting and his wife once again entered Gawain's bedchamber to seduce him. It took every bit of willpower Gawain could muster, but he once again resisted his urges. The lady eventually realized that Gawain would not give in to her advances, so she offered him a gift to remember her by. She offered a ring but Gawain politely declined. Then she offered a green sash, which he also declined. But then she told him that the sash had magical powers and would protect him from any strike or blow. Gawain reconsidered and accepted the sash, and both agreed to keep the gift a secret from her husband. When her husband returned with the fox he had killed, he gave it to Gawain. And Gawain provided kisses in exchange, but he said nothing about the green sash. New Year's Day came, and the night passed, and Gawain prepared himself for his rendezvous with the green knight. He wore his chain mail and armaments, and he also wore the sash, but for to save himself, when suffer him behoved, but for to save himself when it behoved him to suffer. Gawain then mounted his horse, said goodbye to those he had met at the castle, and headed out to search for the Green Knight with the guide that the host had provided. Together they traveled through the snow and the mountainous terrain, until they finally reached the approach to the Green Chapel. The guide stopped and showed Gawain the path, but warned him not to proceed. He said that the Green Knight was a monster who showed no mercy, and Gawain should turn around and leave while he still had the chance. But Gawing proceeded, to avoid being considered a coward, and to satisfy his destiny. Gowing traveled the path, but didn't see a proper chapel anywhere. He only found a desolate area and a cave with a crevice in it. Gowing thought that it was a place where the green knight worshipped the devil. But then he heard a noise coming from a high hill. It was a strange sound. As un upon a stone had a on a seethe as one upon a grindstone had ground a scythe or axe, so it sounded like someone sharpening an axe. Gawain called out for the lord of the place, and then he heard a voice. Abide there, said someone on the bank above over his head, and thou shalt have in haste the thing I promised you once. Abida, quota on, on the banka, a bourbon over his head and thou shalt have all in hast, that ye they hicht on us. Then he came from behind a crag, and came out of a hole, whirling out of a row or nook, with a wicked weapon, a Danish axe, newly ordained for dealing the blow. An seethen he keveres be a crag, and comes of a hole. Weer out of a row, reek a feil weapon, a dain ox new adict. They dai with to yelda. And the knight was geared in green, just as the first time, both the face and the legs, the locks of hair and the beard. And the gome and the erna Gerdes as first, both the lir and the leg locus and beard. Gawain, said the green man, may God guard you. Why, thou art welcome to my place, and thou hast timed thy travel as a true man should, and thou knowest the covenant made between us. Go, quoth the Green Gorma, God the motor, I wis <laughs> thou art welcome week to me plaza, and thou hast deemed it travel as true man should, and thou knowest the covenant as cast us between. Gawain agreed to accept the stroke of the axe without defense. He lowered his head to accept the stroke. The green knight raised his axe up high, but when he started to lower the axe, Gawain flinched. The green knight stopped and laughed, teasing Gawain for flinching, saying that he, the green knight, had not done so when he received Gawain's blow, thereby declaring himself to be the better knight. Gawain replied that he wasn't able to restore his head to his body like the Green Knight, so he flinched, but he would not do so again. The Green Knight raised his axe again and started to swing it downward. Gowing didn't flinch this time, but once again the Green Knight stopped in mid-swing. He laughed and praised Gawain for not flinching that time. Gowing was now furious, and he demanded that the demon complete the act and deliver the blow. The green knight relented. He lifted lightly his weapon and let it straight down with the edge of the blade by the bare neck. Though it hammered Gawain heartily, it hurt him no more. It slightly slashed him on one side so that it severed the skin. He lift this lightly his and let it do in fair with the barb of the be to be the bare neck Tha he homered it heartily, hurt him no more, but sneered him on that onseed seed that severed the heed. So Gawain received the blow from the green knight, but it merely grazed the side of his neck and left a small cut. But other than that, Gawain was fine. He jumped up and withdrew his sword and told the green knight that he had repaid the debt, and if further blows were intended, he was prepared to fight back. The green knight responded. Bold man, don't be so belligerent on this battlefield. No man here has been unmannerly or mistreated you, nor conducted himself outside the covenants contained at the king's court. I owed you a stroke, and you have it. You have been well paid. I release you of any remnants and any remaining rights. If I was determined to deliver a deadly deed, I could have done so and dealt you much more harm. First, I made a motion merrily, not meant to be serious. I withdrew without a wound, which was warranted, according to the agreement we authored that first night. You were trusted to act truthfully, and you have been true to your word. All your gains you gave to me, as a good man should. That second motion I made was for the morning "'when you were kissed by my wife "'and gave the kisses back to me. "'For both of those I barely moved "'and bestowed not a blemish. "'When true men act truly, "'they have nothing to fear. "'But the third gift you didn't tell me, "'so I gave you a scratch with my gear. "'For it is my woven sash that you wear. "'My own wife willed it to you, "'I know full well. "'I know about your kisses and other conduct.' and the wooing of my wife I arranged the work myself. I sent her to test you, and truly I think that you are as faultless as any fellow to set foot on her. Bold de burno on this baint be not so no man on unmannerly, they miss Balden Harbour Nay keed but as covenant at kinges Court shopping. I hecht the stroke, and though it has, hold they well paid. every last day of the remnant, of rectus all other. If he deliver a bainer above it porrentor, he caught the rothlocker half warret, to the half rocked anger. First, he mansed they merely, with a meat on, and rove the with no roth, sore with rict, he they proffered. For they forward that we faced in the fierce nicked, and though tristily they troth and truly me hold us, all the gain thou me gave, as good man should, that other month for the mornin' man e they proffered, though Kis me clear wef, the causes me rashtus, for both a to here he e they bade but to bare mintus, a scatha, trail man trail restore. Then there were three in at the three door, faile door, and therefore that tapa tate, for it is my wered that the wearest that ilka woven girdle, mean owen weef hit the wave it wot well forsooth, no can know e well the courses, and the costes os, and the wowing of me weep, e rocked hit me selven. He sent the to a side, eh, and softly be on the faultless Freca that Evron fought a year. So it's now revealed that the Green Knight was in fact Gawain's host at the Christmas Castle, and Gawain was being tested by the wife while he resided at the castle. The first two times Gawain was honest and returned the kisses he received earlier in the day so the Green Knight withheld the first two strokes. But since Gawain didn't confess the receipt of the sash, the Green Knight did deliver a glancing blow on the third stroke, but it was only a minor cut for a minor offense. All in all, Gawain had passed the test that he had been given. Gawain was relieved to discover the truth, but he was disappointed that he had not been entirely truthful about the sash and had given in to the temptation to keep it secret. The Green Knight then revealed that his name was Bertilac, and that the entire ordeal had been arranged by Morgan Le Fay, the elderly woman who had attended the dinner back at the castle. She hated Guinevere, and she had sent him to Camelot in the form of the Green Knight to frighten Guinevere to death. After these disclosures, Gawain returned to Camelot, where he was welcomed with celebrations, He revealed what happened, and the shame of keeping the green sash a secret and breaking his promise to his host. He said that he would never remove the sash as a sign of his shame. Arthur's knights laughed and assured him that he kept his word more than any other person could have, and they all agreed to wear a similar sash from then on as a sign of solidarity with Gawain. And that concludes the 14th century poem known as Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. It also concludes our look at this revival of English poetry and literature in the late 1300s. Next time, we'll turn our attention back to the real world, and we'll explore what was happening in the actual English court of Richard II. As we'll see, it wasn't all that different from King Arthur's court as described in the Gawain poem. The one thing that they both had in common was elaborate feasts and banquets. And that meant that the court needed lots of cooks and chefs. And around this point in the history of English, some of Richard's chefs prepared a collection of recipes used at the court. And that collection of recipes is apparently the oldest cookbook composed in the English language. So next time, we're going to talk about food and cooking And we're going to examine how the process of cooking and eating shaped the English language. So until then, thanks for listening to the History of English podcast.